So today, we are picking up in verse 7, the verses that John read for us today. And we're once again looking at the subject of Christian liberty. And we've been looking at that topic much of the way through because that's one of the main uh, issues that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. So so we're going to focus in on that today, but uh, we want to look at verses 7 through 16, kind of walk through them, and then we're going to come back and zero in on verse 13. But just to once again remind you of the setting, the background, um, the Galatians, as we've seen, they were in danger of falling from grace. And that fall from grace was due to the fact that they were looking to the law to justify them rather than simple faith in Christ. And so Paul, out of uh, a deep love and concern for them, is telling them in no uncertain terms that if they're seeking uh, to be right with God through their performance, then Christ will profit them nothing. And he's concerned at this point that perhaps they have um, missed the, the real essence of the gospel that he had preached to them uh, because they, they seem to be being carried away by this false teaching. So for Paul, salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, and, and any attempt to mingle grace and works nullified grace. That, that's how Paul understood this whole issue of grace. And so here in our text, uh, he continues to personally challenge them. So remember, he's got a relationship with these people. He was the, uh, the, the one that God used to found the churches there, many of them. And so he's speaking to them very candidly, speaking to them uh, on, a, on a very personal level. And in verse seven, as we pick up, he says, he says to them, you ran well, but who, or you ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? So uh, of course, Paul's experience with them there, as we pointed out, and as he even uh, referred to in the early chapters, uh, they started off quite well. It was a very promising situation. They had received the gospel of the grace of God and they were experiencing this wonderful life transformation and the joy uh, of their salvation and all of that. that. That's how they started the race. They ran well. But then Paul says, who hindered you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, the interesting thing here when he makes reference to their disobedience to the truth, you know, they would have thought, no doubt, that they were they were actually even becoming more obedient because they were not only believing in Christ, but they were incorporating the law of Moses. But Paul says that that was an act of disobedience. It was an act of disobedience because the law had come to its end. It was no longer a means through which God was working, and they were trying to bring something back that God had set aside. So Paul says to them here that they are actually at this point far from becoming more obedient, they're, they're actually disobeying the truth. And then he says in verse eight, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And, and again, undoubtedly, they would have thought that 
well, you know, we're, you know, God is, is leading us now in this direction. Paul only gave us part of the picture. He only gave us half the information we needed. He told us about Jesus. He didn't tell us about the law. So they're probably assuming that these false teachers that had come, they were now speaking for God. God was telling them, you need to bring in this edition of the law. Paul says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. No, this isn't God that's uh, leading you in this direction. They were actually being misled. And so verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he refers to these, the influence of these teachers as leaven. Now, leaven, pretty consistently in Scripture, leaven is uh, a representative of corruption, of, of sin. And so Paul sees their influence as, uh, as a corrupting influence. And even though there, there was obviously just a, a small group of them, they were, they were having a tremendous influence and it was affecting the entire church in Galatia. So he says, though, in verse 10, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind. So, so Paul, uh, he still holds out a confidence and a hope that the work that had begun among them was, was genuine and that this was, this was a phase that they would come out of, that they wouldn't uh, settle into this false teaching. And, and, and he expresses that here, as he would do in, in many of his epistles. You know, when you read through the letters in the New Testament, especially, we'll just talk about the ones that Paul wrote, you know, he wrote to these churches that were full of people, just like us, sinners, and uh, subsequently, these churches had problems. Uh, but Paul didn't see that as a as an indication that they weren't true believers. He saw it as uh, an indication that they were immature and they just needed to uh, be taught and challenged and they needed to continue to progress and grow. So he's always expressing uh, his confidence in just kind of the idea, he that has begun a good work in you is going to complete it. He, he would express the confidence that God was going to finish what he started there. And he feels the same way about these Galatians, despite the unfortunate situation at this point. And so verse 11 is interesting though, because as we look at verse 11, we see that the false teachers apparently had come to a place where they started to even suggest that Paul would agree with them. And so he says in verse 11, he says, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. So, they were suggesting that Paul, that this, Paul really believes the same thing. Now, here we are today and we're hearing about uh, the preaching of circumcision. And you might wonder what in the world would that sound like? What is the preaching of circumcision? Well, the preaching of circumcision is just, it's Paul's way of describing um, a message that tells a person that they can save themselves. That's what, that's what circumcision represented. 
It represented your ability, the human ability through works to save yourself. So to preach circumcision is to tell sinners that they can save themselves by their own good works. To preach Christ crucified is to tell them they cannot and that only Christ can save them through the cross. And so they're suggesting that, you know, Paul's message is really the same as ours. He's, he understands that you can, um, through your best efforts, you can uh, attain the uh, approval of God. Um, John Stott, in his commentary, uh, mentioned just this whole mentality. He said, the message of circumcision is quite inoffensive, popular because flattering. The message of Christ crucified is, however, offensive to human pride, unpopular because unflattering. So to preach circumcision is to avoid persecution. To preach Christ crucified is to invite it. People hate to be told that they can be saved only at the foot of the cross, and they oppose the preacher who tells them so. If we preach the gospel, we shall arouse ridicule and opposition. Only if we preach circumcision and uh, preach circumcision, the merits and sufficiency of man shall we escape persecution and become popular. So what was true in Paul's day is true today as well. There, the, you might wonder, I mean, you know, how is it that in uh, today, right today, in our culture presently, how is it that there is, in, coming from certain places, there's such a disdain for the gospel? You know, when you think about the gospel being the good news, when you think about God loving us, you think about Christ dying for us, I mean, all of that sounds really good. And you would think that people would, would welcome something like that. And the, one of the huge ironies in our culture currently, especially among the cultural elites, is how there is this just strange sympathy toward Islam and uh, a very open and aggressive hostility toward the Christian faith. And you look at it and you think, wow, how, how can that be? Well, I think part of it is they, they simply refuse to understand what Islam is. Um, but Islam, as well as every other religion, basically preaches circumcision in the sense that we're talking about it. It basically sends a message that you can ultimately save yourself. As a matter of fact, you are, it's up to you to save yourself through your good works. The disdain still to this very day for the message of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. You have nothing that you can contribute to your salvation. You, your case is so bad, you are so hopelessly lost Somebody else has to save you. That's the rub. That's what people do not want to hear. And that is true today, just like it was back in Paul's day. So Paul refutes the, the false claim that he himself would preach circumcision. But you, you wonder how they would even come up with a suggestion like that. And, and Paul says here, he says, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision. Now, when would Paul have preached circumcision? He would have preached this before he was a believer because as a Jewish rabbi, as a Pharisee, he believed that you were saved through adherence to the law. But there was no time in his apostolic ministry where he ever 
preached circumcision. But on one occasion, we know that Paul took Timothy, before he went on a missionary journey, he took Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and father was Greek, he took Timothy and he had him circumcised. Not because he thought that was saving Timothy, he did it because he wanted to be culturally sensitive and he knew that if he brought Timothy with him to minister to Jews, this would have been somewhat of a stumbling block. So, so maybe they use that as their point of reference to say that Paul was preaching uh, circumcision. But what Paul says here in verse 11 is if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? then the offense of the cross has ceased. He's saying, look, if I was preaching circumcision, I would not be being persecuted. So you can know that I'm not preaching circumcision by the fact that I'm being persecuted. You don't get persecuted for preaching circumcision. Nobody today is gonna get persecuted for standing up and saying, hey, just be a good person. Just be the best person you can. Or even, hey, join this religion and you just do your best to you know, follow the rules and, and that's good. Nobody's gonna persecute you for that. But people are going to persecute those who say, well, actually, no, there, there's only one way to salvation, and that's through Christ. And it's through what Christ did because we can't save ourselves. That, again, as I said, is still the rub today. So Paul, he is correcting the, the misinformation there. But, but back at the, the second part of verse 10, and, and verse 12 together. Notice what he says in the latter part of verse 10. He says, regarding those uh, who were troubling them, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And then look at verse 12. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is a pretty radical statement by Paul. He, what he's saying here is these guys that are emphasizing circumcision, he says, I wish they'd just go all the way and castrate themselves. That's, that's pretty hardcore. But we, what we need to understand here is this, this is a righteous indignation against um, an attempt to destroy the faith of, of these believers. So Paul is looking at this from the standpoint of, of these false teachers are really the agents of the devil and they're seeking to destroy the faith of these young believers. And, and Paul is looking at them as um, candidates for judgment. And rightfully so, because Jesus said that uh, for those who would lead astray, the little ones who believe in him, remember Jesus said it would be better if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the depth of the sea. God has no sympathy for those who would turn people away from the truth. And you guys know that we, you know, we're living in a culture that is becoming increasingly um, soft on everything. So, you know, the idea that that somebody would come out and say something as forceful as, you know, there's going to be a judgment on, on even false teachers. Even people in the church today just sort of, you know, uh, withdraw from that. Oh, wait, you know, well, we don't, want to, we don't want to go that far. We don't want to say that. But Jesus said it, and Paul is echoing it right here. There, there is nothing more serious from God's point of view than people being led astray from the truth, from his truth. 
And so there is a place to stand up and, and let the, the false prophet, the false voice know that there is a judgment that awaits. And that's, that's what Paul is communicating here. So, you know, it's, it's contrary to the, generally speaking, kind of the tone in the culture, at least from some, um, but it's not contrary to the biblical uh, picture of how God feels about things. I was trying to think of a, like a parallel, sort of a modern parallel. We don't have anybody for the most part, you know, we don't have people today um, in churches who are gravitating back toward Judaism and wanting to add, you know, the, the keeping of the law to their salvation. It's a different cultural context. But I was thinking this is similar to what we might see where somebody seemingly comes to faith, but then like, say, for example, a cult comes along and, and then seeks to lead them astray. So they put their simple faith and trust in Christ and then, you know, someone comes and knocks on their door and says, oh, no, no, you're believing in Jesus isn't, that's not enough. You need to join our organization or you need to become part of this, whether it's a cult or whether it's a false religion. It's in our context, that's what, what it would look like. So moving on to verses 13 through 16 real quickly. And then, like I said, we'll come back to verse 13. But Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so now Paul is coming back once again to remind them of the fact that we have been called to liberty. And he says that this liberty has freed us to, to love, to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourself. And, and then he, he ends up telling us ultimately that all of this happens through the power of the Spirit. So walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we'll come back to that um, in our next teaching. That's what we're going to focus on. But I want to focus today on the subject of liberty once again and also the subject of love. And so Paul says that we are called to liberty. Now, of course, we've been talking a lot about liberty. He has been um, trying to bring them back to that to that place of, of their freedom in Christ. And so here he's once again telling them, like he did in the first verse of, of chapter five, remember, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So now again, he says, we've been called to liberty, but do not use this liberty as a cloak for the flesh or as, a, as an occasion for the flesh. So let me just remind you of, of the call to liberty. What, what is he talking about? Let me just sum it up in four points. Remember, number one, we've been, we've been freed from the condemnation of the law. So that's where our liberty begins. We're freed from the condemnation of the law. I'm no longer bound up with an obligation to the law in order to please God. 
now I'm, I'm freed from that. I understand that that is not the means by which I come into a right relationship with God. So I'm free from the condemnation of the law. And secondly, similarly, I'm free from bondage to performance-based acceptance. So this, I'm, I'm freed from this. Now, I don't, I don't uh, understand my acceptance with God uh, could, based on my performance. In other words, if I, if I have a, a poor performance, I don't conclude that I am no longer accepted by God because I'm, I'm freed from that. That's not how my acceptance with God works. So I'm, I'm out from the bondage of that. I'm no longer living with that kind of anxiety. And this is what people live with. They live with the, the anxiety of, of whether or not they're accepted by God, and it always goes back to performance. So if I seem to be performing well, then I have a great confidence that I'm accepted by God, and I can expect God's uh, smile to be um, you know, given to me. I can expect his blessing and his favor because you know I'm just I'm doing well. But if you think about it, if, if I'm thinking that way, I'm in a performance-based acceptance mode. And so, conversely, if I am not performing well, then my expectation is very low for God's uh, mercy or for his blessing or for any of those kinds of things, because after all, why would God want to bless me? I'm such a loser. But we've been set free from all that. That's what Paul is talking about. We are free and at rest in God's unfailing love. That's the third thing. So we're, we're freed from that kind of bondage, and now we're at rest in God's unfailing love. God loves me not just when I'm performing well, but he even loves me when I'm not performing well. His love for me doesn't change. Just like a parent loves their child regardless of their performance. You love your child when they're good. You love them when they're bad. You love them when they're in between. You love your child. And so God loves us with an unfailing love. And so we're, we're free in that. We, we're free because we realize that it, God's love does not fluctuate with my ability to perform. And then fourthly, we are free to enjoy life in our Father's world. So we're free to enjoy life. Paul writes to Timothy at a certain point, and he says that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And, and so we're freed from those kinds of things that uh, religion so often brings along as um, restrictions. And, and Paul puts it this way in writing to the Colossians. He, he describes it like, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle and, and this is what religion does. It, it, it puts a limit on all of the, you know, the, these kinds of things in life and tells you, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. You can't enjoy that. You can't experience that. You can't touch that. You can't taste that. You can't handle that. And we've been set free from that. And what a wonderful thing it is to be set free from that. Uh, because so oftentimes, even as Christians, we can fall into the trap of thinking that, well, a good Christian just, 
you know, certainly can't enjoy life because all of life is sinful and we just can't be involved in anything and we withdraw from society or we just, you know, are, are constantly critical of people who seem to be enjoying themselves in any way. And then we kind of develop a reputation as, uh, you know, Christians are just against everything. People ask, are you guys for anything or are you just against everything? And sometimes it's understandable that people ask that because that's, that's the impression that we give. That's, the, that's kind of the vibe that we put off. But, but that shouldn't be the case because we're free to enjoy life. Not everything in life is sinful. And so we have to recognize that. You know, there are many things in culture. There's art and there's entertainment and there's, you know, there, there's music and there's just, the, you know, the, the enjoyable things of life. Some Christians think that all of that is taboo. That's all off limits. No, we can't engage in any of that. Well, look, the thing that God doesn't want us engaging in is sin. But let's not make up sinful stuff. Let's let God tell us what sin is and what it's not. We don't, we don't need to add to the list of sin. God's done a perfect job in laying that out for us. So, so we have freedom. This is the liberty that we have. We are free to enjoy life in our Father's world. It's God's world. And there are many wonderful things in God's world, even uh, many wonderful things in culture, even many wonderful things that, that human beings, sinful human beings have developed. But because we're created in the image of God, there's still something in some of these things that can ultimately glorify God. So we're called to liberty. But now Paul says, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So what is he talking about? Well, Peter puts it another, uh, the same thing, but he just words it differently. Peter says, do not use your liberty as a cloak for vice or a cloak for sin. In other words, do not say that Christian liberty means that I can just do anything I want and I don't have to think twice about it. This is the misunderstanding of, of liberty that sometimes people embrace. So here's what we need to realize. Christian freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. This is the mistake that is sometimes made. No, God has set us free from the law. He saved us by grace, not by works. But he hasn't saved us to let us just go run amok in sin. No, of course, he's, his objective is to save us from sin. That's his purpose. And so the NLT puts it beautifully. The NLT says, for you have been called to live in freedom, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. So you see, when I say I am free in Christ, I'm, I'm not bound to the law. I'm not saying I can do anything I want. doesn't matter. I can live like the devil and go to, uh, expect to go to heaven at the end of the day. That's a, that's a misunderstanding. Anybody who thinks that way has uh, distorted the message of God's grace. So anyone who insists that the gospel encourages us to sin has simply not understood it yet nor begun to feel its power. When the gospel really takes hold in a person's heart, 
you know, it, it, it moves you itself in the direction uh, opposite of, of sin. That's the, what the gospel does in us. It's the power of the spirit working in us. So there have always been, all the way back to biblical times, there have always been those who misinterpret grace and Christian liberty to allow for sin. As Paul would preach grace in his day, they would say, oh, Paul's, this is Paul's message. Paul's message is, um, let us do evil that good may come. Or because Paul says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Some said, oh, Paul is teaching that we should just keep sinning and just sin as much as we want because the more we sin, the more grace will come. And in response to both of those things, Paul said, I am absolutely not saying that. I am certainly not saying that. And we are not saying that as we preach God's grace. That's not what we're saying at all. So for those who draw that conclusion, they are drawing an incorrect conclusion. Now, regarding Christian liberty... Paul also spoke in other places of Christian liberty. Now, in writing to the Corinthians, the Corinthians and the Galatians had kind of the opposite problems. The Galatians, of course, had embraced the law, right? That was their thing. So they had lost their liberty to uh, religious legalism. The Corinthians, they weren't doing that at all. Their liberty was in jeopardy by giving themselves over to the flesh, just like Paul says not to do here. So Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says this. Listen, he says, all things are lawful for me. So this is a very broad uh, statement on liberty. All things are lawful for me. Can I do that? Well, yeah, I can do it. But then he said this, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. You see, Paul understood that liberty falsely exercised could lead one back into bondage and it's bondage that Christ has set us free from. We have had a double emancipation. We have been set free from both the condemnation of the law and the destructive power of sin, and we are to remain free from both of them. So much of what we've talked about up until this point in Galatians has been the first part, right? We've been talking about having been set free from the condemnation of the law. That's what Paul's been talking about. So we're just going along with what Paul is is communicating. But now he just throws in this reminder of what he's actually saying when he's emphasizing our liberty. Our liberty is not a cloak for vice. We're not to use our liberty um, to indulge the flesh. And we're not to use our liberty in a way that is unhelpful, unedifying, or potentially bringing us back into bondage. So we have to understand that. And in also, uh, or in writing to the Corinthians also, Paul says that our, our, our liberty 
has to be monitored by love. And that's what he goes on to say here, right? He says, for you have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, in writing to the Corinthians again, Paul talks about their abuse of liberty. And Paul says that if your liberty is stumbling somebody else, then you're not walking in love. So you see, my liberty is going to have limitations on it, not only because the things I allow might not be helpful, they might not be edifying, and they might potentially... um, bring me back into bondage. All of those are very valid reasons. But there's one more reason. Um, it's, it's also because I don't want my liberty to become a stumbling block to somebody else. But let's think about the, the two last things for a moment. If our liberty is exercised to the point that we come back into bondage, then we've abused our liberty, right? So we have to be very wise. We have to be very careful. And we also have to realize that this liberty thing has uh, a real individual element to it because I might have a certain liberty that you don't have and you might have a certain liberty that I don't have and I can't assume that because you have the liberty that I also have it. I have to be aware of that. God might say to this person, you know, no problem. He might say to me, that's a problem for you. So you don't go there. You know, I talked a couple of weeks back or last week, I don't remember when it was, but just about the subject of alcohol and the fact that the scripture, you know, uh, prohibits absolutely 100% drunkenness, but it doesn't necessarily prohibit the drinking of alcohol. But this is where we need to have a lot of wisdom because for some people, the exercising of that liberty could lead you into bondage because you have a propensity for that or you have a weakness there or you, or you came out of something like that. So for you, you got to just, in my liberty, I am free to not do that. You know, this is the thing we've got to realize about liberty as well. Some people see it only in terms of, I am free to do this, I am free to do that. But you know what? Liberty also goes the other way. I am free not to do that. And that's an important aspect of liberty that we've got to see. If you're in bondage to something, then you're not free, right? So liberty sets you free to not do certain things as well. So I have to be extremely careful because I do not want to risk coming back into bondage to anything myself, but I also have to be aware that there are other people that my liberty might stumble. And so I have to take them into consideration. Now, the Corinthians asked Paul, well, why is my liberty judged by somebody else's conscience? That's their problem, not mine. That's what they said. Paul said, no, it is your problem because that person is your brother. And you're to walk in love. And love for your brother means if my liberty would cause them to stumble to the point that they would be brought back into bondage, then my liberty needs to go because love trumps liberty. 
I was talking to a person after first service this morning, and she was saying to me, she said, you know, in, in my experience and in my family context, uh, we had a situation where um, my, my husband and, and some other family members, they had, you know, they had a liberty to drink. And so they came and, you know, my husband kind of engaged in that. And pretty soon he was back involved in drunkenness. And she said that at a certain point, she went to them and said, hey, you know, you need to stop this because this is the influence that you're having and this is destructive for our family and all of that. And the response of the person was, hey man, I've got liberty. You know, don't tell me what to do or not to do in this. See, that's an abuse of liberty. That's not an, an exercising of Christian liberty according to what the scripture says. That's an abuse of liberty. The proper exercise of liberty at that point is to say, oh yes, okay, I get it. I understand that I do have this freedom, but my freedom has become a stumbling block for somebody else, so I'm gonna withdraw that freedom. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he says that we are to uh, use our liberty not as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love we are to serve one another. And so... God's grace has set us free from bondage to the law and from bondage to sin so that we can serve him and each other. And so notice here, and it's kind of a play on words, Paul says that we are free to serve. Now, serving was what a slave did. So it's interesting that Paul says we're free to serve. But it's one of those sort of funny uh, ironies that you find in Scripture. We're now free to serve. So in other words, our freedom that God has given us, this glorious liberty that we're talking about, he set us free to just be able to serve him and one another. He set us free from the law. He set us free from sin. So we serve God because of his great love for us and our desire to reciprocate that love. So I'm free to serve God in love. I don't serve God out of fear of judgment. I don't serve God because I'm afraid that if I don't, he's going to zap me. I serve God because his love has so impacted my life, and I'm speaking collectively for all of us. This is the way we're we are to, to function in this. We serve God out of love because of his love for us. So I don't, I don't do this because I have to do things for God. It's the, the perspective is, no, I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to serve the Lord. I get to show him how much I appreciate his love for me by just doing things in return. I reciprocate that love that he has for me. But it's that love that he has for me that is the motivating factor. So you see, under the legal system, I'm, my motivation is fear. My motivation is that it, you know, if I don't do this, I'm going to either be in trouble or I'm going to miss out on a reward or, or something like that. But that's not our motivation. Our motivation is love. God loved us. 
And so we are just returning that love. Now, Paul also here, remember, the Galatians were really enamored with the law. They wanted to, you know, somehow, you know, they thought you needed to incorporate the law. It's almost like Paul says, okay, you want to bring the law into the picture? All right, we'll do it right here. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, oh, wait, that's not the law we were thinking about. But that, that's the essence of the law. Circumcision, all of these things were peripheral things. The real core of it was loving your neighbor as yourself. So Paul says, yes, this, this, is, this is the law. This is the summation of the law. And so we serve one another out of love because our father puts his love for his children in our hearts. And he does that by the spirit. So the point is we've been set free from the law and we've been set free from the destructive power of sin so we could serve God and serve one another in love. And we do that by the Spirit. And now from this point forward, Paul is going to move in to this wonderful explanation for us of how this Christian life works. It is a life that is life in the Spirit. And he says, and notice this, he gives a promise. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So Paul here is giving us the key to maintaining the freedom that Christ has set us free with. It's being in the spirit. It's the life of the spirit. And we'll go in depth in looking at the life of the Spirit because this one verse, verse 16, is really, it, it really is the key to living the Christian life as God intended us to live it. It's this idea of walking in the Spirit. So we're going to take uh, a good amount of time and look at just exactly what that means. And we'll, we'll move into that next week. But in closing... Walking in the Spirit is how we remain free from the dominion of sin, and it is how we fulfill the great command to love one another. And as we do that, as we walk in the Spirit, and as we experience the victory, then we live in this wonderful place of freedom, and that place of freedom is, the, is where the blessing is. It's where the blessing is for us, and it's where the blessing is that, that goes out from us to others. As they see the freedom, as they see the joy, as they see the fruit of the Spirit that he's going to go on to talk about a little bit later in the chapter. So it all comes back around to where they started, really, because you remember at the beginning of the letter, Paul asked them the question, did you receive the spirit by the hearing of faith or by the keeping of the law? So Paul's bringing them all the way full circle. I'm taking you back to where you started. You've been off on this, this detour, this diversion, but now you're coming back around to it all comes down to life in the spirit. And that's what the Christian life is about. It's about life in the spirit. And so we will carry on looking at that. But once again, finally, we've been set free. Let's stay free. Don't abuse the liberty 
but use the liberty to serve God and others. So Lord, we thank you that you have set us free from both uh, the condemnation and guilt of the law and the burden that that placed upon us. But Lord, you've also set us free from the destructive power of sin that was ruining our lives and dragging us down to hell in the process. Lord, we thank you so much that we have been emancipated through the cross of Jesus. And we, Lord, confess today that, that we are helpless sinners who could not in any way deliver ourselves from our predicament. We thank you that you saved us through the cross of Christ. And we just, again, today afresh, we embrace that and we praise you. And Lord, we want to use this wonderful liberty that we have to serve you and others, to love you and others. So fill us with your spirit to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.